Amen. Amen. What a great opportunity to gather the church family and to celebrate those truths, those promises to not only remind each other, but to remind our own selves of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we're going to celebrate that today in a bit of a heavier way as we dive into eternity, but certainly end there focusing on our need for Jesus Christ as we kick off a new series. But before we start, I do want to go back these last four weeks. I don't know if you guys have been as blessed as I have by what Rustin did with the, the ancient teaching series. The way, yeah, you can, absolutely, you can clap for that. He's not here, so he won't get a big head. He's, he's on vacation. If I know him, he's, he's probably... He might still be elbows deep in his breakfast burrito sitting on the beach somewhere, but we'll, we'll see. But man, just powerful time of, of really taking the gospel and looking inward that first week and then having a, a heart for the lost and evangelism week two. And then the idea of forgiveness and his vulnerability and authenticity, sharing some of the difficult things from his own life as we forgive others. And then last week, really looking at this idea of, of not being entitled, but being grateful for what we have in Jesus Christ. Man, just powerful stuff. And we are blessed uh, to have him around. And, and all of you guys know, Jamie will be back in three weeks. He'll be back with a newfound vigor and passion for where we're going to go this next year. This is a beautiful time for him to get away and just to pray and think and spend time with the Lord and say, okay, as this church, where do you want us to go? And so we're excited to have him back. But for the next three weeks, we're going to look at this idea of eternity. And we're going to focus on three key components of eternity. In fact, this week, we're going, to, we're going to look at what God has saved us from in Jesus Christ. We're going to take a, a deep look at this idea of hell. And what is it all about? And what does it mean? Next week, we're going to look what God has saved us to. As we're going to look to heaven and some of the, the biblical descriptions of what eternity forward for those that know Christ will be like. And then the last week, we're going to look at maybe something that, uh, that we don't think of much. But it's this idea of the judgment seat that all of us at some point will kneel before the judgment seat of God. And what do we do with passages like Jesus looking and saying, you will give an account for every word that's come out of your mouth. Or the apostle Paul saying, you will give an account for every deed, both righteous and wicked before God. There's gonna be some form of judgment and what happens in the midst of that. And what does that impact us for eternity? So we're gonna look at those three weeks. My hope certainly, and we'll talk about it next week, is that we would leave knowing about heaven with a newfound confidence and our assurance of what awaits us. It's certainly in the midst of a, of a time right now. And that last week that we would leave with a conviction uh, that though some of us might go, okay, I know I'm a child of God, so therefore eternity waits. So that doesn't mean we just sit on our hands and wait for God to call us home, but that we have a calling now and we'll be held accountable for it. And so maybe there'll be some conviction involved in that. But certainly this week, for so many of us, my hope and prayer is that we would really lean in and have a heart of compassion, a heart of compassion for our lost friends and loved ones. And my fear, I've been praying a bunch and asking a bunch, is that a message like this uh, won't get weaponized. You heard Rustin uh, a little bit in jest, but talk about that guy outside the Suns game, standing on his soapbox telling everyone they're going to hell as they walk through the masses into, into the game and how that's an interesting form of evangelism. And don't let this week be that. In fact, I will say that I'll ruin it for you right now. If, if you happen to have been sent this message by somebody here, a part of this congregation, just turn it off now. Pick up your phone and call them and say, hey, why'd you send me that message? If God puts somebody on your heart to share this truth with, you call them. They're your friend, they're your loved one. Love them enough to share the truth of Jesus Christ from your own soul. 
Don't use one of us as the hired gun to come in and bring that. Just be, be, be with them. Be present. Be real. It's one of those things we talk about, getting real with each other. Love them right where they're at. Because it's going to be a heavy topic. And what I need all of us to understand, we just got done here at the Shea campus, and I know up at Northridge and at Cactus and certainly in the chapel, so many great worship songs focused on eternity. And for some of us that know Christ, we look forward to eternity. But I need all of us to understand that every human being that's ever been is going to spend eternity somewhere. We were created for eternity. Where we spend eternity is completely contingent on what you do with your faith and where you place it. There are some that will say and will, and will continue to say, no, my faith is in what I can see and understand and what I can know. And so if I can learn it, if I can see it, if I can scientifically discover it, therefore that's where my faith lies and this idea of God is too much. So my faith is in myself, what I can figure out, my own knowledge. Sometimes it's our own pride. We place our faith in us for some of us. And, and let me let me upset as many of you as I can now, and I'll be honest with you, I'd rather upset you in this place here than have any one of you kneel before the throne of God and realize you didn't get it. There are some of us here that have been coming to church for years, and we've put our faith in ourselves because we say things like, I've gone to church forever. I was raised in a Christian home. I read my Bible every day. I do, I do, I do, I do. And never in all of that time in church, never in all of that time in God's word, have you come to the end of yourself and said, but God, I need your son, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter how much you serve, how much you give, how much you attend. If you don't know Jesus, you're placing your faith on yourself and what you do. And that's a dangerous place to live. Where you put your faith matters. Matters in eternity. See, there was a period of time in my life where I had to come to the end of myself and say, God, I can't do this. I'm a mess. And he looked at me with a smile on his face and said, I know. That's why I sent Jesus. And in that moment, surrendering my life to Christ and grabbing onto Jesus and saying, I need you for everything, my eternity was altered. I went from the place we're going to talk about today and I was ushered into the family of God. But that has nothing to do with the fact that I'm up here or that I've gone to church my life. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ did for me. And so before we even roll into the rest of this, I just want that to be out there for you. Where have you placed your faith? Where have you placed your faith? Because not only is there an impact here and now, but eternity awaits all of us. And where we go is contingent upon what we do with Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us. Let me, let, me, let me pray like crazy that for those of us that know Christ, our heart breaks with compassion for a hurting world. And then we'll dive into our time in the word. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much. God, for some of the worship we just got done singing about, God, singing your gospel message over each other and to ourselves. And God, we are so grateful for what you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, today, as we lean into a heavier topic, God, one that maybe we don't like to think about, but God, it is true. And we need to teach and know your truth. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill this place in Northridge Cactus Chapel online. God, that your spirit would move in a way that only you can, that you would grab hearts. And God, if there are some here today that have rejected your gift of grace, God, that they would receive it today, maybe for the first time. God, for all of us that know you as our good father, God, that we would leave with grateful hearts. 
for what you've saved us from, but God, certainly with hearts that break for a world that needs you. So God, meet us in this place. Speak to us through your word, through the power of your spirit. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if I haven't mentioned it yet, this week as we look at eternity, we're going to spend a, 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 the bulk of our, in fact, all of our time looking at the eternal hell and the separation from the presence of God for eternity. And it's a, a fate that awaits everybody without Jesus Christ. And so before we dive into what the Bible says eternal hell is, I want to spend some time because I feel like certainly in our culture and I've interacted with enough people that we need to unpack two mistruths or heresies or, or things that just don't naturally line up biblically, though as much as we might want them to be true, they're just not found in the, in the pages of scripture uh, that are plaguing our, our society right now. Uh, and they're two big church words. Don't get freaked out by the church words. I'll explain each one of them. Uh, but they're these two words here. It's this idea of universalism and annihilationism. Universalism is this. Some of you can figure it out. It's this idea that, oh, all roads lead to a, a happy ending. In the end, love wins. In the end, the good, loving, compassionate father, the one that's full of grace, is going to look down at his creation, and there's no way that he would ever condemn anyone to outside of his presence. So in the end, everybody's in. It's a great thought. It's just not biblically true. You come to passages like in John 14 where Jesus looks at his guys and he says, look, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And they're all freaked out. And he goes, well, you know the way. And they go, we don't know the way. Tell us the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. And maybe you've been in a conversation, universalism couches itself in this, where you sit down with someone and they say, oh, you know, I know you believe what you believe, but I believe what I believe. And I think in the end, if we just both genuinely believe what we believe, that's going to be honored. And we'll both end up in the same place. It's, it's very culturally accepting to, to kind of, oh, I will agree to disagree. Guys, we cannot agree to disagree over this either true or it's not. And if it's true, there's no greater, th greater thing at stake. What are we willing to risk in an effort to communicate that message of truth? All roads don't lead to eternity with God. Only one way, and that's through Christ. So we've got to be careful here. Second thing is this, this idea of annihilationism. And I'll be honest with you, if, if universalism can't be true, I wish this was true. Annihilationism is the understanding that in the end, God's going to punish the wicked. That everyone that believes Jesus will go spend eternity with God in heaven, but the wicked will be punished for a bit, and then they will just cease to be. They will be annihilated. There's no eternal punishment forever and ever and ever for their sins. That seems too harsh. It's got to just be for a little bit. You kind of get a, a really strong, vengeful God slap on the wrist, but then you just cease. And there's a part of me that I have dear friends that have, have, God's called them home without knowing Christ, that I go, man, I long for that to be true. The only problem is when you read scripture, that doesn't seem to quite line up. You can go do a study on your own, but certainly at the end of Matthew 25 is maybe the clearest, most direct place where Jesus says, look, in the end, I'm going to take the righteous, the good, and I'm going to send them to eternal life. Eternal life, same Greek word used both times. I'm going to take them to eternal life, but the wicked to eternal punishment. 
And you have to do some serious gymnastics to say, well, I want eternal life because that's good, so I want to think of that for eternity, but eternal punishment, we gotta, you just can't. You can't separate the two. Everyone is destined for eternity somewhere. There is no all roads lead to heaven, and there is no, hey, in the end, if, if you didn't quite get in, you'll just cease to be. No, there is an eternal conscience punishment that you will experience forever and ever and ever without Jesus Christ. As hard as that is, because we, it appeals so much to our, but God is good, God is loving. He is good, he is loving. That's why he sent Jesus Christ for you to receive the gift of grace. But to reject it, eternity awaits. And the danger right now, certainly in our world, in fact, some of you even now are already, I'm out, this guy, I'm out of this chair. That's fine. If you don't, you don't like me, that's okay. Paul to Timothy, his, his little protege teaching a church in Ephesus would write this in 2 Timothy 4. He'd say, hey, teach sound doctrine. Always be ready in season and out to preach truth because in the last days, people are going to follow teachers they want to hear from. And they're gonna teach things that he says that their itching ears wanna hear. Do not be led astray. You teach truth. And as appealing as both of these might be, they're just not biblically true. You do your own wrestling with the Lord on that. But we want to be a church that teaches truth from God's word, not from our opinion. So as we lean into the rest of this, I need us to understand eternity awaits. And for some of us, we have loved ones, those in our lives, maybe some of us even in this room that don't know Christ. This is a reality for us. For those of us that do know Jesus Christ, my hope is that as you, re, as you look and hear some of these things, your heart would well up with gratefulness and compassion and joy when you realize what God has saved us from. Not so that we can walk around with our chest puffed out and point the finger at everybody else, but that with broken, compassionate hearts, we could look at the world around us and go, man, I can't wait to tell you about Jesus because it's the most important thing in the world. Are we there? So if that's what it's not, we're going to take a look at what it is in just a second, but I want to read a quote to kind of preface all of this for us. Because as we wade into some of this stuff, if you're like me, there's a part of you that's going to go, God, that's not fair. That seems too much. So here's a quote by C.S. Lewis. We'll reference it again at the end, but I want to hit it up front just so we can kind of have this in our minds. This is what C.S. Lewis would say. He would say, sin is a person saying to God, go away and leave me alone. Hell is God finally saying to that individual, you may have your wish. It's God leaving one to oneself as he or she has chosen. So as we weigh into some of this, if there's a part of you that wants to shake a fist at God, you can, he's big enough, he can handle that. But let's own our own stuff and let us realize that we are, we are not perfect. We are sinful and our rejection of the gospel very much has eternal consequences. But in the end, God might just say, you may have your wish. So let's dive into this. If it's not universalism, if it's not annihilationism, what is it? Well, there's two words that we're gonna, we're gonna pick apart. The Old Testament uses the word Sheol and the New Testament uses the word Hades. Let me set this up. These are temporary holding places for the wicked after death. So when anybody dies now, they either go to We'll look at this next week, a place called heaven, not the eternal heaven, but a place called heaven or Abraham's bosom or a bunch of different words. We can look at that. Or they go to Hades or Sheol. It's a temporary holding place for the wicked until 
that judgment seat day when God comes back and judges all, then they go to what we'll look at in a minute, eternal hell. So there's two different concepts here biblically. The first one is this idea of Hades or Sheol. And there's some description around it, but nothing overly immense. And so I want to take us to a passage that talks about this from the mouth of Jesus himself. And he's setting up a story. And Jesus is a master teacher. And he's teaching a parable. But in the midst of the parable, we get a little bit of a description of this temporary holding place of the wicked called Hades. It's in Luke chapter 16. You can read the whole story later. Let me set it up for you like this. Jesus says, look, there were two men. One was a rich man, had everything this world could offer him, money, power, fame, wealth, all of this stuff. And there was a poor man. His name was Lazarus. He had nothing. In fact, he had a very difficult, hard life. It says Lazarus would crawl under the table of the rich man and look for things that would fall off the table just to feed himself because he, he had nothing while the rich man lived his life in luxury. And as God would see fit, each of them died on the same day. The rich man was taken to Hades while Lazarus was taken to Abraham's side. Again, I would make an allusion to the, the heaven. And in between, they see each other. And what you get is you get this rich man looking out and he looks across what is described as this great chasm, this, this huge gap between Lazarus and Abraham and the rich man. And the rich man looks out and goes, Father Abraham, please, I beg you, would you send Lazarus over here just to dip his finger in water and place it on my tongue because I'm in such anguish and agony. Abraham responds and says, there's a great chasm between us. We can't cross over there. Plus, this is Abraham's, or this is Lazarus's fate. You have received yours. I cannot cross over. Now we're gonna pick up our dialogue here. The rich man's gonna respond with this statement. And he, this being the rich man, says this. Then I beg you, Father, to send him, him is Lazarus, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man replies, no father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen or they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The beauty of Jesus' foreshadowing and teaching here is unbelievable. And I don't want to nerd out on that. But what I want us to understand is, here's a man in what God himself and Jesus Christ is describing as Hades. He has two thoughts on his mind. The first one is to beg for some form of relief for the place of torment that he is in. Just a drop of water on my tongue to give me momentary relief for I am in great pain and agony. Abraham says, that's not possible. Then the second thing on his mind, then I beg you, I beg you, please go to my father's house and tell my brothers. Tell them the truth so they don't end up here. Abraham replies, look, they've got the prophets. They've got the word of God. He says, oh, but if someone comes back from the dead, and it's interesting because there's an allusion to this idea that even when Christ returns from the dead, we celebrate it at Easter every year, even that people will reject. Now, as you look at that, here's, here's what I need us to, to understand. I have met with, and, and unfortunately, I've had the unfortunate opportunity to walk two very dear friends of mine through this. One lost his father 
The other lost his girlfriend. Neither of those two individuals knew Jesus Christ. Very clear, very evident, no question. And each of these men that I met with and talked with made the similar statement to me. They looked at me and they said, Kevin, here's the deal. If, if heaven and hell are real and my loved one is in hell or Hades, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because I've got to be with my loved one. And the idea of spending eternity apart from them sounds terrible. I get that. That is a human, emotional, loving response to losing somebody who doesn't know Jesus. But here's what I want us to look at and see. Let's look at it from the point of view of the one that's gone on. Might they echo the same words as this rich man? Though you love them and long to be with them for eternity, might they be sitting in Hades pleading with the God of the universe saying, would you do anything to reach my loved one with the gospel message of truth? Because I do not want them here for one second. And the love that they are expressing to God as they plead for his, his message to come to you, might you receive that, whether today or, or certainly in the future? Because otherwise, this idea of, oh, I'll spend eternity with my loved one, it'll be okay. I don't know if it's necessarily what you think it's gonna be. Torment, anguish. We'll look into what comes next, this idea of hell in just a second. Everything that's meant to describe this, this punishment, this place for the wicked is not meant to be some form of like, oh, it'll be okay. It's not going to be okay. And it's not going to be quick. It's going to be for eternity. So there's our description of Hades, this holding place for the wicked. At the end, the judgment seat, a couple weeks from now, we'll look at that deeply, is going to come this final judgment. Revelation talks about then death and Hades are given up. And those from death and Hades temporary wicked holding place, are then cast into eternal punishment. This is what the Bible would refer to as hell, eternal hell. And there's a word that's used, in fact, all 11, all but one time is used by, by Jesus throughout the Gospels is this word Gehenna. The other time is in James referencing, you know, who can hold the tongue. It sets the course of, of hell on fire. But every other time it references Gehenna, this idea of Gehenna, which is a, a Greek word taken from a Jewish word. And let me, let me nerd out on some of you just for a second. The, the Jewish word is, is derived from this idea of the Valley of Hermon. And the Valley of Hermon, if you've, if you've read through your Old Testament, is the place where the, where the wicked kings of Israel would take children and sacrifice them to the pagan god Molech and Baal. And so it became known throughout Judaism as just this terrible, accursed, awful place. Moms would, they would talk of mothers screaming and crying as husbands or kings would take their children and cast them over the edge of this ravine to, to, to die at the, at the feet below as the valley of slaughter. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to talk about, let me tell you what hell is like, he would reference the most horrific place in culture that they could have some idea of. That's where we get this word Gehenna. So I started to think, what do we have today? None of us have been to the Valley of Himmon. We don't have any concept of that. And I couldn't think of much other than this. A few years ago, when I was a youth pastor, I had the opportunity to take a group of students over to Poland on a missions trip. And we did some great things at this church. It was a ton of fun. It was awesome. But in the midst of that trip, we took one day and we took a tour through the concentration camp Auschwitz. 
And they would walk us through room to room where they had huge displays of, of just, I still remember the glasses, I just eyeglasses piled up that they had taken off of human beings. A whole mass of hair and clothing and luggage. And then they would take you into these little caves that were, that were the gas chambers where they would, they would execute millions of image bearers of God. And then they would show you where they would burn their bodies. And I remember walking this place and just feeling this oppression of evil. I even still can feel it if I let myself go back to that spot of just the heinous things that took place there. And so when a word like Auschwitz comes up to me now, I immediately think of this evil, horrific place. I need us to understand when, when Jesus uses the word Gehenna, that's what he's trying to reference. Let me, in fact, you just in your own minds right now, think of the most evil place you could imagine on earth. And you would say, well, that's hell on earth. It's kind of what he's alluding to here. So he uses this word Gehenna. And then he's going to describe it in a lot of different ways. And I need us to understand, we'll read two quotes in just a second. None of these descriptions of Gehenna are meant for us to, oh, I'm going to want to know exactly what it's going to be like. That's not what he's setting out to do. What he's setting out to do is saying, let me describe to you how awful it is. Maybe not in the clearest picture possible because your minds would explode if you knew how terrible this place was in an infinite God punishing wickedness forever. So I'm going to give you the closest things I can just to give you an idea. It's a place you just don't want to be. So here's some, not an exhaustive list, but here's some of the ways in which Jesus himself and others would describe this idea of eternal hell. Several times you will hear Jesus say, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, crying out, sobbing, gnashing of teeth, both from pain and anguish, as well as from loss of presence with God and others. There's just a pit of sorrow and pain. He would also say there's unquenchable fire, eternal fire, just constantly burning. Now, is there, is there actual, we'll look at it in a second, is there an actual lake of fire? Maybe. God very well may do that. But I don't think the idea is to picture a lake of fire. It's more to picture what must it be like to be in eternal pain? Have you ever burned yourself before? It hurts. Plug your wife's curling iron in at home for about 20 minutes and then just pick it up, right? It hurts. You grab it and you go, ah, you just feel the stinging pain and then it throbs and it lingers. Imagine that for eternity. Is it a lake of fire? I don't know, but maybe what he's trying to describe more than anything else is just the, the, the physical pain in which you will experience in this place. Isaiah would say, look, there's undying worms gnawing at your flesh. That's not in the Precious Moments Bible, but it should be. <laughs> undying worms gnawing at your flesh, eternal, undying, never ending. And yet that's what's going on. Outer darkness. I've heard some say, oh, hell's gonna be great. There's gonna be a big party down there. All the fun people are gonna be in hell. Outer darkness, weeping and gnashing in teeth in eternal torment. Some of you get freaked out when you can't see at night. It's totally black. That's what it's going to be for eternity. Not only dark, but isolated. There'll be no others around. You will be left for eternity to weep, gnash your teeth, cry out in agony all by yourself. Again, eternal fire, always going, never ending. Paul would allude to this in Thessalonians. He'd say, look, there's an absence of God's presence 
God is not there. And you might look and you might look at this world around us and go, oh, this place is evil, it's wicked, it's terrible. Yeah, there, there's some of that, but guess what? God is still present here. The Holy Spirit is still living and active. Look around, the church is still here. You take the good out of this place, imagine where it would end up. And that's what he's saying hell is. It is void of any goodness of God. Eternal punishment. And again, we'll look at this in a couple weeks, but in Revelation, he talks about this, the second death after the final judgment, eternal death, ongoing over and over and over again. And I hope you hear my heart. We're gonna look at two quotes that kind of set up why I think the Bible spells it out the way that it does, but I need you guys to hear. This is, this is not meant to like scare people. Hey, you want, this is what the word of God says about those that look at Jesus and go, I want nothing to do with you. Okay? And no matter how many times he presents himself, whether it be at church, through a loved one, through those that just want to share the hope of Christ with you, if we reject and reject and reject and reject, in the end, might just be God looking at you saying, you may have your wish. This is it. So for those of us in here that know Jesus Christ, again, don't weaponize this, but take this and look. You will, some of you are about to go to breakfast in just a little bit, and you'll be face-to-face -face with someone that has no concept of Jesus, and everything we just looked at awaits them. Stir anything in your heart as an, as an image bearer of God that stands before you, anything in your heart that you might be willing to risk and say, man, can I just tell you, Jesus Christ loves you. And leave it at that. See what the Spirit does with even with a statement like that. Do we have a heart for the world around us? Two quotes, one by John Calvin. He would say this. Now, because no description, and again, this is, this is why I lean on this. I don't think this is a clear picture. I think it's meant to be so shocking that we just go, I want nothing to do with that. Now, because no description can deal adequately with the gravity of God's vengeance against the wicked, their torments and tortures are figuratively expressed to us by physical things. That is by darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, unquenchable fire, and undying worm gnawing at the heart. But such expressions the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all of our senses with dread. You can go back and look at that list. Again, it's not exhaustive and it's not meant to paint the perfect picture, but it is meant to wake us up and help us realize that's what awaits all of us till Jesus shows up. That's what awaits all of us until Jesus shows up. Old theologian, great pastor Jonathan Edwards would describe it this way. It's a long quote, but feel the weight of this. Just be present with me for a second. Feel the weight of this. When you, again, these are the, the you are those wicked in, in hell. When you look forward, you shall know, you shall see along forever a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains so that your punishment will indeed be infinite. Oh, who can express what the state of a soul in such circumstances is? 
All that we can possibly say about it gives but a very feeble, faint representation of it. Tis an inexpressible and inconceivable, for who knows the power of God's anger? Feel the weight of that. Millions and millions of ages only to realize it has but just begun. Separated from God in eternal anguish. This is the biblical reality of what awaits those that don't know Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, you read that, you feel that, you hear that, and at some point you look and you look at God and you go, but I thought he's a God of grace and love and compassion. He is. That's why Jesus came. And maybe you would look and say, okay, I'm going to shake my fist because I, I haven't done anything worthy of that. Oh, I get it, you know, Hitler, Bin Laden, and we can kind of give our top 10 lists of people that deserve this, but our loved ones that we know that were just genuinely good people, really, they deserve that? Here's where I end up in, in my own theology. It's bad. One of two things takes place, if not both. One, I have too low view of sin. My view of sin is far too low. I look out and go, okay, here's my top 10 list of things not to do. But the rest of this, really? I was joking with somebody earlier. I, I drove home from San Diego yesterday. We had somebody give us an opportunity to go to San Diego. We were there for a little while. Drove home from San Diego. Made it from door of the resort to my house. Five hours. Okay? You can do the math. I might have been breaking some speed limits here and there. Not submitting to the authority God has instituted over this great nation. And I, I, I shook my finger and, and prayed for no, no officers along the way. <laughs> but I look at that and go, that's not really that bad. No, that's sin. That's sin. Petty, small, I got a lot worse I could share with you. I'm just not going to. <laughs> but for me, that's sin. And to diminish it to anything less than that it makes, gives me too low a view of sin. The other thing that falls into play here is I have too low a view of God's holiness. As soon as I begin to look at God and go, yeah, but God, you can tolerate that, right? I mean, I just, I'm just trying to be a good steward of my time, right? No, it's sin. And to a perfect God, he can't tolerate any of it. And so if you want to shake your fist and you want to blame God for any of this, just understand your view of sin might be too low and your view of God is probably too low. He is perfect. He is holy. He can't tolerate any of it. So any one thing places us here for eternity. And if that makes you angry, let me share with you the hope of Jesus Christ. As hard as that is to hear, the gospel message is that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth, to come to the end of themselves and say, I'm gonna place my faith in Jesus Christ, the man that lived a perfect life, that died for the sins of myself and anyone else that would choose to grab onto him with all that they have. And in that moment, everything we talked about for eternity, you are plucked up from and you are adopted into God's family and you are placed into a place we will look at next week called heaven and it's very different than what we looked at today. And you are forgiven and you are redeemed and all of a sudden everything that you owe this for has been paid by Jesus Christ. But that only comes if you put your faith in him. It doesn't come from anything else. And so again, we're back. Where do you place your faith? Where do you place your faith? I'll look at, at 
This is a bit of a jump, but it's Paul. Paul in Romans 9, you can read the whole passage if you want, but he's spelling out this idea of God's wrath and God's goodness, and, and he makes the statement, some of you might say God's being unfair. And maybe as you hear some of this, that's your response. God's being unfair. Let's get our theology in order, and that's kind of where Paul goes here in this jump. He says, look here in Romans chapter 9, you who think that God's unfair, you will say then to them, why does he still find fault for who can resist God's will? Verse 20, let's not forget who God is and who we are, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to, what it, say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Don't forget how big God is, how perfect God is, how infinitely good, awesome, and powerful he is, and who are we to shake a fist and go, it's not fair. I'll tell you what's not fair. Son of God dying for my sins. I don't deserve that, but he did. And in a moment, I fall on my knees, I grab onto the cross, and I'm ushered into a completely different eternity, not because of what I did, because of who Jesus is and what he did. So what do you do? Where have you placed your faith? Let me come back to that C.S. Lewis quote one last time. Sin is a person saying to God, go away, leave me alone. How is God finally saying to the individual, you may have your wish. It's God leaving one to oneself as he or she has chosen. What is your wish? What do you desire? Have you surrendered to Christ? Or are you banking on yourself, your good works, your knowledge and understanding? Or can you acknowledge the fact that you are not perfect and you need a perfect savior? That's the gospel message. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna close. This is gonna get weird and awkward for some. I'm gonna give us about 30 seconds just to be quiet. Just to be quiet. And what I wanna do if you're here and you know Jesus Christ and everything we talked about, you just sit there and go, I can't believe that's what awaited me. Because it awaited all of us. We all understand that? I'll give you one last quote from the great theologians of the late 70s, early 80s, Malcolm and Angus Young. We are all on a highway to hell. And we are going down until Jesus Christ showed up and gave us an off-ramp into eternity with him. So if you know Jesus, I want you to take this time and just thank him for what he saved us from. What he saved us from. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never come to that place, I'm just gonna give you some time with the Spirit to let you do business with God. I'm not gonna pray a prayer. There's no magic prayer anyway. You know what prayer is? It's you letting your heart be known to God and God knows your heart. So if today, whether you're here, Northridge Cactus Online, you wanna surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, not only to experience everything we're gonna talk about next week, but certainly to spare ourselves from this. Do some business with the Lord. And at the end of that time, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna celebrate communion together as a family, maybe in a, in a new light as we look at what he has saved us from. So why don't we spend some time just being silent, and then I'll close us out in prayer.
Father, I don't know what you're stirring in the hearts of your sons and your daughters. I don't know what you're stirring in the hearts of those that you are calling right now into your family. God, you know. Meet them in this place. God, grab our hearts. God, I pray for myself. You continue to well up in me a heart of compassion for anyone you put in my path. God, that I would be quick to brag on your son, Jesus. God, I pray the same for my brothers and sisters here. God, I pray for those that may not know you and maybe they're searching, they're wrestling. Even now, there's angst in their soul. God, let them lean into that. I pray that you would, you would connect them. God, if the pastor at one of these venues, maybe, but God, maybe with a friend, a loved one, a brother or sister in Christ, even as they leave today, they'd come in contact and they would just begin to lean into what you're stirring in them. God, meet them in that place. God, for all of us, certainly now as we come to their time of communion to remember the sacrifice you made, God, not, on that, not let a day go by that we take it for granted, but to realize each and every moment of every day how much your love has covered us, what you have taken us from. God, we look forward to what you have taken us to. So we love you, we praise you, we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.